Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, my name is Tim Carlos, and uh, I'm going to be leading these two guys, Casey Tull on bass, Dale Baker on drums. We're going to be playing some music for you this evening. So, without further ado, I'm going to get on with the first song, and uh, and uh, and then we'll do some more after that.
Hey everybody, welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see everybody here this Sunday night. It's good to see my crew back back here behind me. There wasn't many of you guys here last week. It was a small bunch, but uh, you're back in force over here. Hey, welcome to Emmaus Way. Uh, we're delighted to see you. Uh, thing we say every week, but uh, we mean it, is um, this is a community of people that is committed to being in this space and listening to each other's voices and uh, discerning God's word together as well as sitting at the table together and certainly uh, hearing each other's stories of what's happening redemptively or our stories of lament together. It's a part of who we are as a, a worshiping people, so we are delighted to see you guys. Hey, Announcement-wise, just a couple of things. The big thing is that um, this is Lent starting this week. Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Uh, it's actually one of our um, more memorable worship gatherings. It's very liturgical, and uh, it's a good time. It's actually, I met Mark Williams at our very first uh, Ash Wednesday. He led for us, which was absolutely fantastic. This Wednesday, it's going to be at Phil and Susan Jake's house, which is 805 Watts Street. It's about... Two blocks from here, two big city blocks from here, uh, or, or a turn. How about that? A block and a turn. But it's over uh, uh, right off the, near the wall at Duke's East Campus, uh, 805 Watts. Uh, you can catch these guys if you need directions, but it is in the neighborhood here. And what did we say? 715? Is that, was that the word, Susan? 715 is, I think, what we're saying right now. Uh, uh, so uh, please join us for, uh, uh, we do a, a traditional liturgy, confer ashes, corporate prayer, all of those things. It's a, it's a meaningful time. And one of the things that is important for us is to walk together through the, the seasons and as we prepare for Easter to do so through, through Lent and through uh, Monday, Thursday when we get there as well. So join us for that as well. Any other announcements or things that I'm not aware of that needs to be shouted out? If so, shout it out. Dave Deason.
bottom of the web page, you can click on that, uh, give via your checking account or credit card account, um, or mail. Some people like to send mail in via their, uh, uh, their bank. Um, so it's kind of ways that you can contribute. If you have any questions at all about finances, what we have our budget for, if you've not been around and seen how we you know, set our budget up, feel free to talk to anybody on the finance team, uh, myself, Bill Chase, uh, ben Haas, uh, Danny Bird, uh, Jenny Nicholson, or anybody on the lead team more than happy to talk any time about that. We'll do more updates in the next, uh, next couple weeks, upcoming month, and we'll have a larger discussion. Thanks, Dave Teeson. Hey, one of the things these guys made a great decision on 18 years ago is just not, I had, gosh, I think I lived for 20 years professionally before May Sway with speculative budgets. Like people say, hey, I think we could maybe do this next year, that sort of thing. So it's been really helpful here to do a budget based on what people give. So we kind of write each year's budget on the next year. So you guys have always done a fantastic job with that, and we appreciate the hard work that goes into I know, uh, um uh, Chelsea and the, the crew that does all the finances behind the, the scenes. It's really appreciated. Hey, one quick thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, Ben, or others. Just want you guys to know um, we're still in conversation with Duke Memorial. Uh, we've kind of had a first meeting and moving into a second meeting. So, again, that decision um, hasn't been made about change of location. What what we did in our Ecclesia meeting was made a, a decision to talk and to kind of be serious about seeing what, what would work and what would, wouldn't work at that new space. So I think that's what's happening at this point. Yeah, I, I, so I'm a part of a group of folks that have been meeting with a similar group of five people from Duke Memorial. And so we had our first meeting. Our first meeting was very much a sort of like get to know the people who were on their side of the equation and figuring out sort of where each side was coming from. We're uh, planning to have a meeting in the next within the next two weeks. And so that meeting is going to be the uh, put everything on the table meeting uh, in terms of figuring out what is our ideal way of interfacing with them, what's their ideal way of interfacing with us, what are deal breakers on both sides. Um, so if there are things that you would like to make sure are sort of spoken into that meeting, there's a variety of us that are on the team. Um, obviously, you can speak with Dan, you can speak with myself, Katrina, uh, Chelsea, Rodenheiser, or Elizabeth Eber. Any of us would be happy to hear from you about thoughts or concerns you have. So, um, but yeah, the conversation is ongoing, and hopefully we'll have more to talk about after the next meeting. So. Fantastic. I got that update last week. I, I don't know if there are any other Lord of the Rings nerds like me out there, but uh, there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings where they have this big meeting with the tree people, the Ents, and they meet for about three days. At the end of the three days, they kick back and say, we have decided that the hobbits are not orcs. And so, and it took them about three days of talking. So our first meeting, we walked away from Duke Memorial and they have decided that we are a church and not a cult. <laughs> so we are not orcs. <laughs> we are a church, <laughs> which is not the first time we've had that decided externally. Have we? <laughs> but it's fantastic. So thank you guys for the work on that. And uh, thank you, uh, Tim Carlos, for uh, being with us and, uh, and leading us this Sunday. We appreciate it much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel very lucky to be invited back to to perform more music with you again. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, oh, no, I'm no, sorry. sorry. Yes. Before we kick it back over to the let's do the community prayer. So we'll just do the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our 
lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and Amen. So, as I was saying, um, I, I feel very lucky to be uh, back here again playing music and particularly to be playing with Dale Baker, who you all know drums, and Casey, who I know has been here at least once before. Um, so, and I'm, I'm aware that when, I'm often here as a sideman playing with people like Mark, and uh, the people that I, I stand next to and play, they also have something really insightful or profound to say about the songs they perform. I, I don't have anything really offer about this. Uh, I'll t- this next song I wrote, <coughs> I was tr- uh, sitting uh, on a tr- steam train travelling through a, a tea field in Darjeeling on my way to Nepal. Um, it's called The Truth Will Set You Free. One, two, three, four. How did we arrive where we Dodging bullets to survive We got this far Now it's nearly November There's nothing to fear None of this will
Sorry about that interruption in uh, the proceedings. So, uh, yeah, that was a song that I wrote. And now, uh, this is a, a song that I didn't write. It's uh, from an album called Mule Variations from Tom Waits. And again, I don't really have anything to offer about it other than to say that I think it's a profoundly beautiful song. And sometimes I, I cry when I listen to it. Oh. 
So this Sunday, we are going to um, locate you at two places in a story, which is going to be a little complicated. Uh, it is the last Sunday of Epiphany, which means that Ash Wednesday and Lent is about to begin. So we're really entering the season of preparation, of, uh, of preparation for, uh, for Easter, resurrection. But in the story that we're living, we're not there yet. Uh, the tricky thing is the text we've been reading, we're going to jump right to the end, so to speak. So today, we're going to be looking at the last bit of Mark uh, chapter 16, uh, the very end of Mark's gospel, which is post-resurrection. So you're kind of sitting in two places. We apologize for that, but we wanted to be true to the text, and we've been reading Mark, and we wanted to get to the end. And one of the things that, that Tim didn't comment on this, but I will, is... Um, that and, and was doing a great job with this. The music tonight was very emotive. Uh, if you were, if you look back through the lyrics and in the the piece that's coming up, notice that a lot of the music rotated between uh, hopefulness, like something you know, I, I think I think it's going to matter. I think it's going to work in the end. I think it's going to work out. 
and, and despair. And then in the last song kind of went both ways. What can I take with me? Is it a relationship? Is it possession? Uh, some big questions, so to speak. And the text we're going to read tonight is one that's filled with a pretty wide range of emotions. In fact, a few emotions that you might be surprised to find in the text. So in many ways, Tim has kind of let us sing or listen to uh, that wide range of emotional space that puts us in Mark 16. But rest assured, Sure, next week we will be in the first Sunday of Lent, so uh, so you're going to kind of be a, a dual narrative person uh, today. But let me give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you. As always, introduce yourself if you don't know the people that are around you, but otherwise uh, greet each other, share each other, share the peace of Christ with each other, get a, a snack or uh, well, there's a lot of snacks back there, and coffee or whatever, and I'll give us a shout in about two minutes and we'll jump into the dialogue. So, um, by the way, quick ask, um, if somebody would be uh, queuing up and getting ready to, uh, to read uh, Mark 16, 1 through 8, that'd be great. I'm going to get to that really fast tonight, but uh, we were laughing uh, that will be on the podcast for uh, this week is uh, when we finish the Lord's Prayer, you may have heard that on this side of the room, we said uh, power and glory uh, forever and ever. <laughs> Mr. Miles, who's my man, was behind me, said, there's no power. <laughs> thought, what, a, what an interesting, that's the question of today is uh, we're going to look at a scene today of, um, of some women rolling up to a tomb uh, and worrying about power because there's a really big rock supposedly in front of this tomb, uh, but somebody has moved the rock. Um, and, and then the question is, Jesus made, and we've been reading them, some pretty crazy comments about uh, stuff like, you know, I can tear this temple down and build it up in three days. And by the way, wink, wink, that's a metaphor for my body and all of these things. And so we're going to plop right in the middle of the resurrection and ask the question, is there power? And if so, what does it mean for our lives? So uh, thank you, my man, Miles, for getting us into the conversation tonight. Um, but if we could tonight, let's start with a text. Would somebody uh, give me a, a quick reading of, uh, of Mark 16, 1 through 8? When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Stop. Right there. <laughs> so the next few verses are the shorter added ending, and then there's a longer added ending. But we'll get to that in just a second. But interestingly, Mark's gospel, if you were to look at it and analyze it as like a pie chart, 
16 chapters long. This is a short chapter. 11 chapters are kind of this pretty fast-moving build-up to one week of Jesus' life. Five of the 16 chapters is just one week of his life. So in some ways, this week of being in Jerusalem, um, Eucharist, Last Supper with his disciples, uh, arrested, flogged, abused, persecuted, killed by the state, resurrected, that is more than a third of Mark's gospel. It is really the bulk of the story. And a lot of the chapters, the 11 chapters beforehand, are written pretty carefully to get us to that one week. Now, when we get that one week, it's a pretty dynamic telling. And then we get to this chapter right here, and it ends right when Jim Thomas ended it with, uh, For they were afraid. Uh, It's an incredibly abrupt ending. Nothing else. Now, Mark is any kind of religion, theology scholar type of person would tell you is Mark is using multiple sources and writing his gospel, his own eyewitnesses. The gospels tended to pop up at the same time. He knows that other stuff has happened. There's no sense of, and if you look in your Bible, depending on the version you have, um, there are verses that go to verse 20. Um, But what is pretty clear, I mean 99.9% clear, is that the original author did not write those verses. Um, In the copying of the Bible, it copied for some time and in several different places um, without those verses. And then they kind of appeared. Um, Now, one of the reasons they were added on is that Mark doesn't finish the story. He doesn't finish the story that he knows is out there. And if we were to read John and if we were to read Matthew and Luke, we can get plenty of information about Jesus' post-resurrection life or some information about that. But Mark didn't, the original author, did not write that down for us. He left us right there at the tomb. Uh, So that, in some ways, is going to be our our question. Because if you remember, one of the things that we've been looking at in in reading this gospel together is that Mark is a master editor. He, as a writer, he has created... I mean, if you're one of those people... I I was taught to... um, to translate Greek by writing it out in kind of a flow chart where you saw how this point led to this point, to this clause, to that clause. If you were translating Mark and interpreting it along, you would find this fascinating editorial effort of parallels and comparisons and brief transitions. And the, the man would have done really well on a lot of academics of today because he's a master editor, a master compiler of information. So he did not get to verse 8 and need to go to the bathroom or hit the pub or forgot that he was writing and never got back to it. Um, He intended the story to end right there. Now the church has added on stuff that we we think is important, uh, but Mark wanted to end it at this place. And so the the question that we're going to deal with is why the sharp ending 
And how does that sharp ending relate to this portrait of kingdom and Jesus that we've been reading? Because if you remember, this has been the essence of what we've been wrestling with in Mark's gospel is what is this idea? What does it mean to be in God's place, in God's kingdom, in God's work? And what does it mean to follow, worship, uh, believe in Jesus, all of those things? Mark has been writing to help us do those things. Now, before we kind of interpret this, I want you to react first. Um, so look at the text, and before we get into analyzing, what is interesting? Just components of this ending. What is interesting? I made a little list myself, but I'm curious to see what you would say as well. What is interesting about these uh, last paragraph of Mark's writing of Jesus' life? most shocking to readers of that day would be that, that these are women. <laughs> you know, the revelation is for Yeah, I mean, so who's there? We've got the young man, we assume spiritual being. He's in the know, he's in the tomb. No Jesus. And we've got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, three women. Who come to, they are the witnesses to the most significant event, uh, as I think would Mark write it, in the telling of the world. It's not a hyperbole, and it's three women. Why is that hard? Well, they wouldn't have been witnesses in, in the Jewish world, right? So they wouldn't have constituted a legal witness. So to, for him to choose to say, no, the witness to, witnesses to this were women is a radical Yeah, I mean, you can think of the parallels in our culture where there are certain classes of people, certain races and ethnicities who the law treats differently, right? In the Greco-Roman and Jewish world, women could not testify to a crime. So think about how that would play out. Women could not testify. It's, you know, and... I know at UNC that there was a huge issue last year about a date rape circumstance that played out where it was a he said, she said type of thing. And the institution had policies in place where it didn't seem like, Brandon, you probably know more about this, where there was really good listening at all. But 2,000 years earlier than this, she would have not been, at, well, first of all, she wouldn't have been in school, but had she been in school, her word would have meant nothing. So that's an oddity. That these three women are the ones who testified. There's no writing about Mark saying, hey, I was there over the corner making sure they got it right. Um, uh, most of my colleagues, we joke about this, are female at, 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 in my doctoral program. And we jokingly do these things called mansplaining. Where, uh, where I try to explain to them things that we take photos like uh, my friend Hillary was making spring rolls. Now, if you told me I had two months to make spring rolls, I could not make spring rolls. Hillary's a phenomenal chef, but we were taking Facebook photos of Tim mansplaining to Hillary how to make spring rolls, even though he may have never eaten one. Uh, But that's the world that we're talking about here, is that uh, women could not, um, without a male presence, there was no legal ramifications. That's very interesting. What else is interesting in the story? They're going to do it. They haven't hired a mortician who says, well, no need to have an open casket. We'll just pretend that the body isn't here. They've just seen him executed. 
So they live with the reality of death, the resurrection is all the more startling for them and for us. We're used to, oh yeah, we can resurrect at the end of TV series all the time. Because it doesn't mean people are there, right? They, they see people kill dead, and they got that bomb. And, and in fact, that, that these women, probably at least one of them, has, has embalmed people already. Yeah. She's, she's been there and, and, and worked with the body of the other And so, dead for them is real in a way which just we don't get, right? And there's we kind of, you know, wars. And, and, and then, go ahead, go ahead. That is really interesting that they say nothing there. And, and there's an urgency about death, right? I mean, you're, you're like, it's not like, oh, well, i got to go embalm Jim. Ah, let's put that off for three or four days. I mean, it, that needs to happen now if it's going to happen. So they move there urgently. Death is a normal thing for them. Uh, you know, one of the things that, um, that was very true in the Roman Empire was that bad citizenship was not reproducing. Because uh, this was a death-thinned world that needed population, needed people, that sort of thing. So they were very familiar with death. Uh, it was part of their life. Uh, but, uh, but they don't ask that question. What else is odd? There's oddities to this story. There's just certain, I mean, they have been saying one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? There's urgency, but there's also, well, we're going to go do this, and we're not sure if we're even going to be able to get in. And then, you know, that makes you question. So, like, the, the whole idea of good, they're not sure if they're going to be able to get in. And also, like, there's the whole stigma of what has just happened and who it is that they're going to embalm. And, you know, they're, they're going to basically embalm a convicted con- convict, but they're not sure if they're actually going to be able to get into the it. So yeah. Not a, it may not have been the greatest of plans. The, the stone is a big stone. Uh, yeah. Other, other thoughts on this? What One thing I, I wrote on my list too, now comment on this if you will, the emotional range is pretty significant here. They went out, fled from the tomb, terror and amazement. 
Um, they were afraid. A, a lot of Tim's music tonight was, was striking me that way of terror and amazement, looking at life change, departure, friends, end of life, and kind of going, am I terrified of this or am I amazed by this? Uh, but the emotions are, are really interesting. And then also, they said nothing. I mean, tomb rolled away, body gone, spiritual being in the <laughs> I would be running back to town, both hands in the air, screaming, oh my God, something happened. Uh, what do you guys think about the emotional display here? Is it what you would expect in the story? Is it odd? Is it? Could you explain it? What, what do you think? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it doesn't say, and then there was an angel there, and he said this. It was like, there was a young man dressed in white. And they didn't interpret that. It just, like, the way it's presented is like, here are the facts of what happened. I think that is even more true for Mark's gospel, who has been so regimented and so scripted. One story compares to another story. Six stories in a row, paralleled by six stories almost exactly like them. Boom, boom, boom. And unfolding, 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 unfolding. Oh, my God! It's kind of how it ends. Uh, I read this beautiful memoir by someone who was talking about going through a, um, uh, like, do you know what a hell house is? Do you know what those are? Like, kind of houses with, you know, and this person was going through this this was a, uh, it was, I can't think of her name. It, uh, it's in a book called uh, In the Land of Believers. And it's the story of a woman who is a, um, uh, an atheist uh, Jewish background who moves to Virginia, gets a book contract to uh, attend Jerry Falwell's church for two years. It's kind of an insider's look into fundamentalism since she's moved to Virginia. And she, her first encounter with the church was at a hell house because she didn't think she could just show up at church. So she, she thought, well, I better go at something that's a public event and then maybe they'll invite me to church. And so she went to the hell house and she's like seeing things, seeing things, seeing things. And then there's a cross at the end of it. And she described it beautifully. She said she was like, Apple, 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 spaceship! Oh my gosh, this doesn't seem to fit the sequence of things that I've encountered here. And that's actually a good reading of that. Like there's a spaceship at the end of this story that's very emotional when it didn't seem like it was working that way. Beautiful. Any, any other reactions? We're going to interpret in a moment. Yeah. Brett, I don't know. I'm going to put you on the spot with a question here. I don't, I don't know the answer to this at all. Do you think that Jesus' followers, some of them expected that there was a slight chance if they'd gotten the message, the one we read last week, about him potentially 
defeating death, being resurrected. Do you think that was in their mind at all? Uh, or do you, was that so bizarre that they, they just thought it wasn't his finest oratory moment? Yeah, I think that's a good read on this, that if he were telling the truth, and it wasn't sort of these metaphors that we use to kind of explain away God, so to speak, um, it wouldn't have worked out that way, right? That, that's not what we were, were looking for. Is, uh, and, and who is absent in this story? There is no Jesus in the story. I mean, if you're casting this... Um, you're probably not going to... I mean, there's plenty of good movies that end this way, but I'm, I'm one of those closure people who would rather have Jesus in the story. And I would ask him some questions at that point when I was finished screaming uh, about you know what's going on here. So it's an interesting, a very interesting uh, reading. Um, I don't know, how many of you guys looked at... Oh, sure, Mark. I, this is sort of playing off what Amanda said too, but it, like, it is remarkable... How, how little we're told, you know? I mean, it, it really is remarkable from verse 7, 7 and 8. I, I, like, you do imagine the women getting to Peter and saying, hey, this is what happened. And then Peter says, like, okay, well, what, what else? I, I don't know. I, I just saw this dude in white, and he told me to come and tell you, you know? <laughs> so it, it's, he has, she has very little information to go on. I, I can just imagine Peter saying, well, what, what, what else? Give me, give me something else, you know? Well, I don't really have anything else. I just... This guy told me to come and tell you this. We have all been in a dramatic moment, right? Where we got so excited, we didn't ask any questions, and then we tried to translate to somebody else, and they looked at us like, you're absolutely crazy. That's, that's a thin story. Angelic being, but not Jesus, stone. You know, I mean, it's not a very good story. Um, I thought about, you know, the, I was thinking maybe the way I would cast this story. Did you read the story online this week of the man funeral parlor that they were embalming? Yeah. And he woke up. Now, I might have done that. That would have been really interesting. You know, Jesus is lying in the tomb, and somebody kind of prods him a little bit. Say, yeah, I always wanted to pull God's beard. You know, (laughs) you yank him and he pops up. Now, that would be a good story. But, alas, that's not what happened. So, now interpret this for me. Um, What point is Mark making? Presumably, he may have been there for a resurrection encounter with Jesus. He may have touched the wounds. He may have, he certainly talked to the people who touched the wounds, knew them well. Um, Stories of eating fish and Thomas and resurrection appearances and ascensions and all sorts of things. He knows those stories. He doesn't tell us them. He leaves us, just as you guys have said, in a bizarre emotional range. Um, No Jesus, empty tomb. It's abrupt. Why do you think he does this? Now, I have some speculation on this, and I've read a little speculation on this, but I'm, there's not like this answer I'm looking for. Uh, how, as you're reading this, what do you what do you think's going on here? What is Mark doing? Um, yeah, Wendy. Yeah. 
isn't that interesting? Sometimes I've seen filmmakers do this where you've seen a two-hour film and you'd like to know what happened after the major event. But you know, if the filmmaker spends 90 seconds on it, it's going to feel fairly mundane compared to the two-hour lead-in. So in some ways, it's an interesting way of saying that there is another part of the story by not telling that story. Who do you think are the tellers of that story, by the way? I didn't really think about this, but your question put it there. I think in some ways we're being tasked to be tellers of that story, to say that we're part of the life of Christ that has gone on. So that's an interesting point. It's a, I think it's a really good one that, uh, that uh, it leaves the story to be told rather than wrapping up in a bow. And I think we would kind of say, I don't think Jesus' story is bow-wrappable. If, if, if we're being honest with what we say every week, that we believe God's acting redemptively in this space and with us, then you're telling part of that story every week when you come into this space and say, hey, by the way, I saw a hand. I'm sorry. Who, who, who? Okay, I'll go this way and that, that way. Yes. What do you think? I wonder about this. If I'm tracking with you, Jordan, on this, I have you been in like have you been in an awkward moment? I, I always go back to this this season where one of my fraternity brothers' wife died when we probably mid thirties for us. You know, it's not things that you're used to doing. Had four kids, sweet kids, cute kids. Paternity brothers. We had lots of really detailed, in-depth conversations in the paternity house about life and death and the meaning of things. Not, uh, it was not something we were used to talking about, and um, it was very sad. And and we hadn't seen each other for 15 years, and we're gathering at the funeral home, and it's you know there's things you're supposed to say, and you're supposed to shake hands, and there's a viewing and all that stuff. But at least my fraternity wasn't well equipped for that moment, uh, and so everybody just kind of sped through the line. Look, 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 shake, look, 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 shake, look, 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 shake, and then gathered in the end. And then everybody just as the moment, as the evening got longer, it drifted to crazy stories. Do you remember that party win? Do you remember when Brandon borrowed the car and wrecked it down the hill on Hillsborough Street? And yuck, 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 and everybody's laughing and all of these things. And, and, and then finally somebody just said, which would be perfect for Circa Fraternity Boy 1983. Hey, dude, let's get a keg. <laughs> and all the guys said, that sounds great. I mean, and even the guy who had lost his wife was kind of, because no one knew how to talk about this moment. And for me, I realized, oh, this is bizarre. 
I've been in a Christian community for 13 years. We kind of talk about these things from time to time. So this isn't abnormal to talk about this. But for this group of 50 guys, they had one sentence. They said the sentence, I'm really sorry for your loss. And there was no more data left. Now, the reason I have to tell you that story is that in the tension of the moment, you would have thought that no one had died. You would have thought that no one had lost their mom. No one had lost their their spouse, that this wasn't a tragedy, that cancer isn't a god-awful thing in the world if you were looking at us. And so sometimes what you do after a moment takes away from the moment itself. I wonder if Mark is saying, man, this is the moment. Let's not move anywhere beyond this moment. It ends in death. And resurrection, and he leaves it sitting there like potentially, we say this sometimes, the world has changed. Nothing that you say after this in any way mollifies or makes better the fact that it has changed right then and there. I don't know if you were heading in that direction, but he leaves it like this is the moment the world turns. That's one thought I had this week. Jim, you, I'm sorry, I cut you off. You had something you were going to share too. Well, it's similar to what others have said, but I I think that in storytelling, um, a a story that's going to be retold is is one where there's a mystery, and people are continuing to wrestle with what's going on. A story that is resolved can be set aside, but one that leaves everybody hanging is going to bring people into discussion, like we're having now, like what is going on? What were they thinking about? What really happened? Answers were available in that society. So if, if this story is told, it's going to lead to discussion, and, and those answers are going to come up. But it's going to come up not as a prescribed ending, but something that comes out of relationship and talking with other people. Let's take a guess or a, a nod at possibly that's what Mark wanted us to do. <coughs> then what would you say about that? He leaves this unbelievably prominent event, the resurrection of Jesus, without any moments to ask Jesus if there's blood flowing through the wounds and can you eat fish and kind of see through you and things that I would be like really interested in. He has none of those moments. He leaves us with this world change. What do you think? I mean, let's do what maybe he asked us to do here. What does it mean for us as people who live in the heritage and the community of that story, people who are a part of that story, what does this dramatic moment mean for us or for you very personally? And I'm not looking for a perfect answer on that. It can be, sure. I think it means for us, uh, we're the people that have a shared story. It is this story. It's the story that we tell ourselves and tell each other and retell and retell again and again. It's what defines us. And I would guess, again, following this conjecture, that that's one of the things Mark wants us to get. It's like, what holds you? You could list a million things. Fed those 5,000 people. That was really cool. Somebody asked an embarrassing. You know, it, it, no. He wants us to say this is the epicenter of the story that we share. I think Mark is really pushing in that direction. Absolutely. What else does it mean to us, Marcus? So at my office over at Duke, there's... One of the therapists that's a couple doors down from me has a sign on her door that says something like this. I can't remember the exact wording, but it says something like, what would you attempt to do today 
if you knew you could not fail. And I sort of wonder, like, at the end of this story, if we're leaving this open, and this sort of, I think, is something maybe from what you're saying, Jordan, too, is what if sort of the end of this story is actually saying, so the death thing, that's off the table now. That's no longer going to be the primary concern. And so it leaves it open. Now, Now what are we going to do with that? What is this community of faith, these people who actually say they believe this stuff and that they actually followed this guy around and believe his teaching to be sound and true. What what do we now do now now that now that we know we cannot fail in that sense? And I would Mark, I think that answers a question I've always struggled with with a text. Is Jesus told a couple of stories that worked just like that. He had this crazy story where he gave guy like ten fortunes and five fortunes and one fortune, and they're supposed to invest it in the stock market, you know, or you know, mutual funds, low risk, high risk, whatever you want to do. How many of you guys have ever invested like five bucks less or more and lost it, one way or the other? It happens. It happens all the time. Uh, but Jesus tells this story like you are an idiot if you don't take all the money and put it on black and say. And, you know, throw the, 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 the thing in, you know, in some ways that was a teaching of his is that when you know my life, there's no investment that will fail, so to speak. And I think that's, that's an interesting point is that he's saying, this is it. Live with this narrative in mind. And I would suggest that changes how you live. I mean, some speculation on that. What do you, what would you say? How does it change how you live? Yeah, look. I, I guess I'm, like, it, it drops me at what they were afraid. And it makes me ask the question of, am I supposed to be afraid? Right? Like, that, that, that's like what's so unsatisfying and so unsettling. Like, yeah. to me, it's like, I don't feel like this is a, like a, 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 a hugely empowering story. Like, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm putting my pants over. <laughs> <laughs> like the last scene of the of the movie was like they panned to the people yeah. who saw it, and there was terror. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ah. Yeah. There's something, and I, I was when I was reading this this week, I was wondering if anybody would make that point because there there's something about biblical stories and the work of God that we always feel like they need to be deeply enmeshed in comfort. And this story isn't. Even, you know, like what could you, what would you do today if you didn't think you could fail? I have a reaction to that sometimes. It's like, crap, I just like a rainy day when I feel like I didn't have to go outside. <laughs> now Mark Williams is telling me i got to go cure cancer or change something. I've got to get the Ukraine and Russia talking to each other and there's a warship floating around south of Florida. I've got to, you know, i got to solve that stuff. You know, and so that scares me to some degree. But yeah, that, that is a very, not only legitimate, but un- a edited ending of the story. The last word is afraid. I mean, I can just imagine the monks copying this and kind of going, okay, I've got one more page to do on this thing. It's blank. Oh my gosh. Father Superior, it should not end here. Just 
write something out. I mean, you got Matthew over there. <laughs> Take a peek. You know, well, we're, we're copying Mark. Now look at Matthew. It's friendlier. You know, and so they write the ending of Matthew into Mark. But Mark left us with their, why, why do you think they're afraid? Luke, you may have this now. I mean, what? what? Tim, I'm not, well, this is just speculation, of course, but so if if Jesus has been raised, most people who thought he might come back were probably thinking, somebody said the white horse with maybe, you know, a thousand, you know, angels to come and and kick out Rome and and, and make Israel supreme. um, So these women who have no authority have this inside knowledge that in, perhaps in their mind, the war is about to begin. It's about to get, you know, something really big is about to happen. And if they reveal, if they start talking about this, they will be viewed as, uh, as uh, inciting insurrection. Or they, they might fear for their lives because of what the Romans would do to them. Mm-hmm. So I have an assignment for us on this. Um, the next time you're in a public gathering, Cameron Indoor, Smith Center, Raleigh, wherever, National Anthem is playing. There's some quiet moments. I know like at State they scream out, go back, right in the middle of quiet. You know, when it gets to the quiet moment, I want you to scream out as loud as you possibly can, America is a hegemonic empire. You know, everybody's singing. And then see if you get out alive, right? This is not a welcome statement to say. Like I fantasize sometimes of doing that in churches, you know, like kind of saying, you think your wealth is the blessings of God. You're just lucky. I have a couple, that's one fantasy I have. Um, But do it just once. You know, and if people say, where do you go to church? Then say, I don't know, Vintage 21 or, or, or something. But, but not in the biggest way. But, 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 but that would be an unwelcome comment, right? So there's an oh crap here that I think people are saying, I am going to have to tell a story that undermines the story that's being told. Why were the Christians killed in the early 1st and 2nd century? What was the accusation against them? That, and in the bigger picture, they were undermining the well-being of society, the peace of Rome, how things worked. They were screaming out in the break of the Star-Spangled Banner, America is a hegemonic empire. And it's not a nice thing to say, and not at that moment. So that might be part of the fear here, is that they've got something to say. They've got a narrative with no proof. That under, What were you going to say, Brandon? I don't even know if it fits. But, you know, what's not, you know, what was added is, isn't just a copy of Matthew. It's, it's really weird. Picking up snakes and drinking poison, and you know, we just, we just had this Pentecostal Appalachian minister last week die from picking up a snake, and and you know, he'd been bitten fifteen times and finally died. <coughs> so it's, it, it, I don't know, it's not like a safe copy of Matthew in the way that you were talking about. It's a really strange sort of ending that was supplied whenever it was in the third or fourth century. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And in fact, it may be an ending that affirms the fact that there's proof that this has happened other than the fact that the gospel is a counter story to a, a whole different telling of the world that we live in. And it's a telling that we have to do, we have to embody, we have to live. Um, one of the things that I think is a really interesting theological point here is that I know a lot of my prayer life uh, can be desperate at times. God, please make this different. Jump in here. This would be the moment to say something. This would be the moment to act. This would be the moment to fix something, so to speak. And one of the things when I read the Gospels, I'm left with the reality that God might have said, I've actually done it. I've intervened. I have stepped into the world. I have re-narrated death. I have, what I mean by re-narrating, not just telling a different story, I've changed the flow of time to where death does not rule, so to speak. But I think uh, kind of closing on Luke's comment is um, there are things that God does, and there's a part of the gospel story that I know for me I resist fearfully to the core of my being. And that's another interesting question to ask yourself is, what do you think that God is doing in the world that scares the crap out of you? And I think we, you might come up with an answer or two of that. Um, but, but this is a good, and I'll leave us here with this, it's a really good transition to Lent because Lent is not the feel-good six weeks. It's not all about lament, but it's not the feel-good six weeks to get ready for the celebration of this very moment. It's a time of introspection. It's a time of adding things to your life, taking things away from your life, reflecting and fearfully approaching the work of God that is beyond our knowledge and beyond our awareness and always uh, and often beyond our, our, um, our explanations. And I do think one aspect of this really makes important what we do every week is sitting here and talking to each other about how we receive the text and figuring out together. This week was one of the easiest sermons ever to prepare for me because just in the more I read, the less I knew about this. And I kept coming back to this. Well, I've got these friends I'll talk to about this and we'll figure out something about it. It will mean something to us and it will mean more than me figuring out something and telling them it. We'll figure it out together. So I hope that this uh, end of Mark, which I do think is, is, is a, a beautiful, beautiful gospel for lots of reasons, will spur um, uh, lots of conversation for us. I think Tim did a wonderful job today of doing the fear that Luke talked about as well as the could I be hopeful beyond that fear? I don't know, uh, raising those questions. But I think we're going to transition to confession. Now, I don't see Tim Collins. Is he in sight? Sir Josh will solve that. Let me leave some prayer that we'll, you will transition with that. And, uh, and we'll prepare for confession and absolution tonight. God, I thank you for the comments that my many friends have made here tonight. Uh, insightful, challenging. Uh, your story is one that commands an intention that we don't always want to give to that story. I'd so much rather have a story that affirms what I'm already up to rather than one that demands a complete um, counter-telling of the world that, that I'm in. And so we're, we're challenged, we're frightened, we're joyful. Uh, may we receive your presence, may we embody it with our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Okay, uh, so um, a couple of songs we're going to play for you now. First song uh, is a, a Randy Newman composition called I think it's going to rain today. So uh, this is going to be the final number for the evening, and again, I'm very grateful that, uh, that you uh, invited me back. Um, and hopefully, this song we can have a little bit of a singer song, sing along with this next one. It's a, a credit house song called "Don't Dream It's Over." Um, so, if you're feeling who might you'd like to sing, that would be really good.
There's a battle ahead Many battles are lost But you'll never see the end of the road If you're traveling with me Hey now, hey now Don't dream it's over Many of you who have spent 
time around me, uh, particularly after I've had a couple of drinks, will know that my favorite author um, is a guy named David Foster Wallace, um, someone who I've read all of his books, who I uh, think about and talk about incessantly. Um, but he, what, one of the books that he wrote, and the book that's sort of considered to be his uh, masterpiece, is a, a book called Infinite Jest. It was published in the mid-90s. And it's this ridiculous 1,100-page novel uh, about a whole bunch of things. But uh, primarily what he's talking about there is addiction. Um, he was a recovering alcoholic and uh, was addicted to narcotics for a while. And he wrote it in the process of coming through recovery. But one of the questions that he asks throughout the book is, what is the difference between um, the people who are in high school and are addicted to the idea of themselves as successful and the people in the halfway house who are addicted to alcohol and the people who are on their fifth or sixth hour of Netflix binging House of Cards, right? These are all forms of addictions. They're all ways in which uh, addiction takes hold of us. And so the book is one of these interesting narrative structures where it sort of circles around these main themes and we get sort of snips and fragments. But very much like the Gospel of Mark that we saw tonight, it just sort of ends, um, there are three main plot lines that he's been weaving over the course of 1,100 pages, and they all start to sort of take some shape, and you see where they're all headed, and then he sort of cuts them off. And it was, it's interesting in interviews when people try to talk to him about why he had chosen this narrative structure, they say, well, the book is so much about the way that entertainment takes hold of us, and we're so enthralled. We have to know how the story goes. We have to get season two of House of Cards and watch it all as soon as it comes out. Um, so it was really interested in that plot line in your book, and I was wondering, like, what happens? Like, do the people in the story continue to be enthralled to entertainment, or do they find a way out of it? And Wallace's response was essentially... We'll see. The fact that you keep asking me how the story ends tells me probably not. We're probably not going to find our way out of it. But the idea of the book was to send people into community to try and figure out how the story turned out. One of the things that he emphasizes over and over again in the book, and one of the ways that he sees out of uh, this culture of addiction, is... Um, the mundane practices that he came to know in AA. Um, it's all of these cliches, it's these things that seem in the face of something as large as alcohol addiction to be um, almost meaningless. Um, he found himself over and over again in recovery finding people saying, well, just take it a day at a time. And as someone who had done a PhD at Harvard, and all, he didn't, it didn't jive with him. He couldn't figure out why they kept saying these mundane things. But in the end, he sort of looks back 10 or 15 years later and he says, it was, it was being able to say those things and practice something like one day at a time that eventually saved me. I, could, I couldn't have come out of alcoholism without those things. So I think what's interesting to me at the end of Mark, and even if you look at the shorter ending that we've printed in the bulletin, what we have essentially is a question of, you know, will we say like, okay, the world's been utterly changed. Are we going to see the kingdom of God? And Mark is sort of saying, I don't know, will we? There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of things that need to be changed. And so for us, too, maybe those things start with mundane practices. 
Maybe that starts for us with simply coming to the table, with breaking bread for one another, with pouring wine or juice for one another, and acknowledging the story that's being told, and carrying the story of Jesus into the world through that practice, through that interaction, through that telling of the story, and that in continuing to tell the story, perhaps the kingdom of God does come about. Here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, which means all of you are welcome to come. We break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you. Pour wine or juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. I welcome you to the table tonight to tell the story and to help the kingdom of God to come about in our world. Amen.